Hello and welcome to Army of Crime Cast, critical journey through the world of comic and film. I'm your host, Matt, and with me is my co-host and producer, Dustin. Hello, everyone. On this show, we cast a pretty wide net, try and trawl up as much content as we can. We review everything in the universe, two items at a time. This week, we are looking at the Frank Miller comic, Ronin, and the Taiwanese film, Warriors of the Rainbow. That's right, brother Matt. Which uh, which one would you like to tackle first? Uh, first up will be the Frank Miller sci-fi comic, Ronin. Sounds good. Let's do it. First up, Ronin is part of the 1980s wave of comics where things started to get pushed in new directions. Uh, this is the time period where we start to see things like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, uh, Batman Year One, where we have the Vertigo series with the British creators coming over. It's one of the earlier attempts at a Marvel DC creator-owned comic. Uh, it's not quite creator-owned, but a, more of a where they would let creators kind of turn loose on stuff, which is more common now than it was at the time. And this, of course, is also before Frank Miller was a, a household name. Yeah, this was, I think, um, Frank Miller's sort of breakthrough hit before he did Daredevil and before he did Batman. He kind of had this calling card of this uh, four-issue miniseries called Ronin, um, which I had not read before, but certainly I had been aware of its reputation. Um so, yeah, I think we both just uh, read this for the first time, even though we're both probably fairly familiar with uh, Frank Miller's later work. Is that right? You had not read this before either? A long time ago, not really remembering it. Uh, speaking of his reputation, I actually was poking around online, and it looks like, yeah, the critical reception when this came out was very, very strong, very positive. Uh, looking around online, I do see a a more of a mixed opinion, I think, from contemporary people reading it for the first time. So you always fall back into that question of, was it good for the time? Like, was it groundbreaking? Or was it, you know, like, actually good, quote-unquote? Well, I thought um, that it was really strong. I felt like it was really uh, good and actually held up for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, I know Frank Miller has kind of long since descended into wingnuttery and sort of self-parody, but I feel like that uh, this is maybe some of his strongest art, or at least some really good art that he had done. Um, it's like the very uh, beginning of what would kind of become known as the Frank Miller style. And I thought that for me, like the visuals of it would be the strongest reason to recommend Ronin. And I felt like that that part of it held up really well. There's a lot of really sort of thin, uh, sketchy, like line work. And he also has these like double splash page spreads of the city of New York in the future. Um, a lot of it is, is really nice to look at. It's, like I said, some of it is like very sketchy and very kind of raw looking. And it also is um, colored by his longtime collaborator who, I don't know, I feel like they were maybe like married once or it's here nor there. Uh, Lynn Varley does the coloring 
And that part of it is also, I would say, really strong. And it's interesting for like a science fiction book because the predominant colors are like green and black, basically. Um, not exclusively, but there's a lot of really interesting, uh, strong choices in the coloring too. But I don't know if you want to get into, should probably talk about the uh, story a little bit, such as it is. Yeah. So when it started, in my mind, I was picturing this sort of very simple genre mashup, which is something Frank Miller does in other things. He's a person to introduce the ninjas and the hand into Daredevil. He's also puts ninjas in like Sin City, twisting your expectations pretty significantly, which is interesting that it's like his groundbreaking work and not something he did later to like deconstruct. Well, he yeah, Frank Miller clearly has a fascination with like uh, Japanese popular fiction, like Japanese sort of like pulp fiction tropes of like samurai warriors and ninjas fighting and stuff like that. Um, and certainly there's a fair amount of that in here, but he does sort of play around with it in an interesting way. And it ends up becoming more of a sort of weirdo science fiction story than, 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 than a, than anything else. I mean, the, the plot is basically you have the way it starts is the premise is an evil demon from feudal Japan and a samurai warrior are basically like teleported into the future and they continue their feud to like kill each other in this like dystopian sort of ruined hellscape version of New York. But then as it goes on, you begin to realize that that's not really what's going on. There's actually this bio computer that's slowly taking over the city and apparently is, is bent on world domination and that the samurai character is the samurai and the demon character are perhaps not really there or they're sort of like, you know, figments of... They're almost like avatars? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. They are which, sort of like which avatars. Leads you, which leads us back to, you mentioned, just to circle back slightly to the technical part because the layout of the city, you have the organic technology. It's almost sort of a body horror thing because it's like this creeping fungus over the city. Is yeah. it almost how it looks? Yeah, um, he goes back to this double splash page of New York City, and you can see this weird, like, fungus creature, which is this biocomputer, slowly creeping out over the entire city. And eventually, yeah, you begin to realize that that's actually the main thing that's going on here. And this samurai demon stuff is sort of just the window dressing that's been put on it by the characters subconsciously. Yeah, and the what I thought was interesting was the yeah, so you you do get that that mashup because you do get scenes where it's the samurai fighting robots and he's literally on a horse and he's in a post-apocalyptic environment. So he does give you that at the beginning. Um and some of those technical parts are very interesting. Like the scenes of the, I think there's a spread, a single page spread of that goes into more double page spread. And he breaks it down into small panels of the samurai on horseback, you know, and he's fighting. There's like robots attacking them from the sky and stuff. Yeah. And the technical aspect of that, and, and that's all very cool and interesting. And that's the sort of base level. So you get that and it's very cool. And then he like goes down the rabbit hole, I guess you could say. And it gets more and more complex from there. Yeah. 
Um, and it's interesting too, because even though it's called Ronin and the premise involves uh, the samurai, the uh, the actual like protagonist of this story more so is a woman named McKenna, who is the chief security officer for the corporation that runs or controls or owns this biocomputer. And she ends up sort of unraveling the mystery of what in the heck is actually going on here with this demon character and the samurai character and so on. Oh. Right. So we could plausibly say that the title refers to her as well. Yeah. Like she, like she's the Ronin and then the demon is the computer in the same way that there's the samurai and the demon. Right. So it's like a, it's like a double story layered on top of itself. It's like I said, it's a lot more interesting than I was anticipating going into it. Um, and I would definitely, yeah, it, it, it kind of leaves you with something to think about at the end. It actually reminded me of Akira in a lot of it, ways. Yeah, I could see that. Would this have been before Akira? Or was this like right around the same time? That's a good question. I believe it's around the same time. And I don't think Akira would have been something people in America would have had a lot of access to as it was coming out. But maybe Frank Miller did. Actually, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. But like thematically, I feel like there's a lot of tie in as well as like visually with like the post-apocalyptic landscape and like the interplay between like powers and, you know, this ruined cityscape, that kind of thing. And like the mad scientist angle. Yeah, I lied. I said this was a four-issue miniseries. It's actually a six-issue. Uh, it's actually a six-issue miniseries. You got um, to get that. Got to get that research done, Dustin. Yeah, I guess. Get your, get your research assistant on that. I'll have to uh, fire my uh, researcher. I was going to say another thing I appreciate about it is the fact that he does actually continue to subvert some of the characters, um, and it's interesting again comparing it to later things Frank Miller does, where he doesn't always subvert characters like in sin city a lot of characters are just what they are right they're very straightforward but like in this you have dr mckenna who's like the lead scientist and he's on the surface level kind of a he's got like glasses he's like a nerd or something and he kind of armors up and tries to become a hero character and is almost sort of a tragic thing and with the relationship between him and his wife i mean it's almost weird like his wife is like this strong warrior type but they're both heroic characters in different ways yeah i mean he definitely uh puts it all on the line to try to stop the evil computer that's bent on world domination so yeah there's a lot of another interesting thematic angle on this was um the idea that the computer it, you know this computer is ordering them to fight each other and they refuse to do so because they know from their own like human experience that they shouldn't do that but like the computer can't control everything so it can't control their own perception because if if the computer tells them to kill casey for example the soldiers can refuse to do it because they know that casey you know is a good person or whatever so it's interesting to see you know the evil computer character which is like a stock character almost and it kind of runs up against the limits of its power because it still has to be able to convince humans somehow and like we see the there's a bureaucrat character who helps evacuate the co the complex at the end. So yeah. again, you see sort of a regular human guy who you wouldn't look at and think of as a heroic character kind of steps up at the end. Also towards the end, then the the uh, 
computer switches to using robots to try to kill the main characters instead of ordering its troops to do it for for probably for that reason i suppose there's also uh zombies that live underground and like eat people yeah you get into some of the weird stuff because there's a period too where there's the thing with the there's like street gangs and they wear leather and they have swastikas and i'm not really sure why that's a thing i feel like that's like a recurring frank miller character yeah that that part i felt was a little i don't know if i felt like he kind of pushed that a little too far um yeah the the stock it's like there's like a black street gang and a white street gang and the white street gang are nazis um which is the same kind of character that he would draw in like dark knight returns where you'd have like the the street the weirdo street gangs with the swastika armband um that part felt a little over the top in a way that did not fit with the rest of the story. It kind of seemed more like him, I don't know, in, indulging maybe his uh, tendencies that ended up taking over in something like 300. Um, yeah, I think we could probably lose that. That's that's part of it that we could probably lose the, the S&M street gangs with the swastikas on there. Yeah, it turns into like this like weirdo like race war with everyone dropping racial slurs all the time. And it kind of feels like Frank Miller being a little like indulging in his uh, transgressive, you know, weird racial issues that ended up kind of becoming much more pronounced later, unfortunately. Um, I think he just likes to kind of push buttons or something. You know, he wants to, he wants to do things that he, that he knows the audience might be a little uncomfortable with or something. I think he has a sort of a contrarian vibe, but you know, that's not a big part of Ronan and he kind of moves past it. So. Yeah. It's a little, yeah, it, it, it fortunately does not become like a major plot point going forward, but it feels like this odd, like little detour. The book probably didn't really need, um, cause it leads then into this fight against these zombies that live underground, which again ends up being a little bit of like a detour overall. I felt like, um, Ronin was really strong. It's maybe some of my favorite Frank Miller art. Like I would put it with maybe right under or right around um, Electra Lives Again. Is that what that book is called? Electra. Yeah. You know yeah, the, the book I'm talking about? That's like yeah, his, the uh, graphic novel, the yeah. Daredevil standalone. Yeah. I always felt like that was maybe Frank Miller's strongest work as an artist, but I think Ronan is, is right up there. And maybe because unlike when he then later go on to work on corporate characters for Marvel and for DC, there was maybe more restrictions on, you know, exactly what you could, couldn't and couldn't do. Whereas in Ronan, he's sort of free to indulge in all of his, you know, odd tendencies and desires of wanting to draw robots and ninjas and samurais and all sorts of stuff. Um, and like I said, there is maybe one part where that maybe gets a little carried away with that. But for all, I thought Ronin was a really strong book. It definitely um, holds up and is more kind of based on what you're saying. At the beginning of our discussion about the 80s and comics from the 80s and so how sometimes when you go back there really just like straining to be edgy and are not really that interesting but i felt like that this was one that definitely 
held up and still worth reading. Yeah, I think we're in agreement. I, I, I also thought it was very strong. Like the technical aspects, obviously Frank Miller has all that technical stuff, the panels, the layouts. He's got double page spreads. There's like little postage stamp panels. I mean, it's all it's all working together. It actually reminds me of when you read early, um, not real early, but uh, Will Eisner's Spirit, where he uses panels and things in a way that most often people don't. I guess panels are just blocks that have pictures in them and use like the page layout in a way. It reminds me of like Will Eisner because he'll use the panel, the whole page layout as like a thing in and of itself, not just a space that has, you know, little blocks in it yeah and i mean i know frank Frank miller was obviously a huge will eisner fan so i imagine that's probably not a coincidence so even definitely stands the test of time i would say ronan read it or not i don't want to boss anyone around no i'm bossing people around it everyone has to read ronan here's one last final thought i'm going to give that is a really random connection it probably doesn't really make sense. The ending of it gave me the same feeling that reading the end of Dune gives you. And if you've read the novel Dune, and I won't say what happens, but it's an intentionally, like the very last, last part is intentionally anticlimactic so that you keep thinking about it after you're done reading it. And while the ending of Ronin is not intentionally anticlimactic, there's really no uh, decompression afterwards. You know, a lot of times in a story ends, there's like a little bit at the end where everyone shakes hands and they figure out what they're going to do with their lives now that they completed the mission, the quest, they saved the world, whatever. It really doesn't have that. It just ends like, boom, it's over. Done. And now you're you're just left kind of thinking about it. And there's also this fold-out. Like, right, there's like a five-page fold-out, yeah. which is very cool. And then, yeah, the, the very end, it almost seems like he... Um, like it basically throws you for a loop in context of everything that's happened bef- before. It just gives you like a final image that, like you said, kind of like leaves you with this sort of puzzled thing to think about in comparison to everything that's happened before. Yeah. It's really nice. It's really nice. Like it's, yeah. it uh, definitely ends on like a great note. Incidentally, also has samurai in it. Is the Taiwanese film Warriors of the Rainbow, and we both watched. There's multiple cuts of this movie. We both watched the two and a half hour cut that was released for the English speaking world. Not that they speak English in it, but there's a four and a half hour apparently Taiwanese original version as well as uh, a version that's both that where it's the whole runtime's edited into two separate movies. So Warriors of the Rainbow, two and a half hour. It's usually called the international version. Uh, I will give a little bit of background what it's about because it it's about something that in the, I feel like in the West we don't really learn about, which is Japanese colonization of Asia. So obviously we all know Imperial Japan, right? They're the bad guys in World War II. We know they fight against America. We know we dropped atom bombs on them. But for some reason, they kind of fly under the radar in a way that, like, Nazi Germany doesn't. We all know all the evil stuff Nazi Germany gets up to. For whatever reason, Imperial Japan flies under the radar a bit. So this is about Imperial Japanese colonization of Taiwan. And this was made as a big budget. It's the largest budget Taiwanese movie ever made as a sort of 
propaganda. I don't think propaganda has to necessarily be a negative word. It's just a description. It's a propaganda piece sort of about Taiwanese nationalism, I think, standing up to Japan yeah, as I mean, well it's, as... It's, it's a patriotic epic of resistance against Japanese occupiers. Right. And it, I believe it did win some festival awards. Reviews are a little mixed when I looked online. I guess I'll go first if you want to, if that's okay with you. Yeah, go ahead. And what did you think of Warriors of the Rainbow, the international version? Yeah, so I wanted to see this based on the fact that it's about an interesting historical event, the Japanese occupation of Taiwan. And you see this a little bit at the beginning of the movie. Um, Imperial Japan uh, beats up China in a war, which they do several times. And in the treaty afterwards, China gives them some of their own colonial holdings, which includes the island of Taiwan. Uh, the Japanese show up, and whereas China had had a very sort of light colonization, uh, the Japanese expectation is that they're going to just take over the whole thing from coast to coast. And there's resistance from not necessarily the Chinese people who live there on the coastal cities, but the native Taiwanese that live in the interior. So there's a series of wars fought and like uprisings between the native Taiwanese and the Imperial Japan. So that's the historical background. And that's the thing about it that I found the most interesting was just learning the that history, that story overall, and it seems very authentic. Um, the the clothing, you know, they speak their their indigenous language. You get some of their customs, um, you know, where they live, the sort of trials and stuff they went through. There's a lot of interesting parallels to American colonization of the Midwest, and it's interesting to see how so many similar things happen, you know, halfway around the world. Okay, but you can get all that from a book or from a Wikipedia article. Yeah, so as a movie, I feel like it kind of struggled a little. I'm not sure what would be in the four and a half hour version that would make it, that was desperately missing from this version. As a movie, yeah, I felt like it struggled a little. There's just a lot that happens. There's a lot of squishy area in the middle that I think the word I'm looking for is melodramatic too. Um, and obviously it's a big story, patriotic epic, like you said. Some of the staging of the fight sequences and stuff leave a little to be desired. The Japanese soldiers die like, I think, uh, like stormtroopers from Star Wars. And you get into this weird thing of like, if they're so ineffective, how are they able to take over so much of the island in the first place? Yeah, I think um, I found this film to be sort of hokey overall. I think the it, it indulges in these sort of uh, occasionally these real like picturesque, like naturally images that come off as sort of cheesy. The characters are all drawn really uh, thinly. And like you said, as far as the the actual fight scenes and the Japanese soldiers, like the film, I think Edwards is trying to be sort of this pretty portrayal of indigenous oppression by the Japanese empire, but then it also kind of tries to have its cake and eat it too by having rousing action scenes where the heroes can kill Japanese troops by the dozen. And I feel like that that's kind of like an odd thing, which, you know, in the context of a patriotic epic certainly makes sense to some degree, but I think that as a film like that sort of clash, I found 
sort of odd and just the fact that I don't think any of the characters in the film are really all that interesting. It kind of, I think, commits a sin that a lot of would-be historical epics commit where you have these like fairly thin two-dimensional characters who are sort of just moved around by the winds of history. And in this film, the uh, I did not find it personally to be all that engaging. It was fairly hokey like you said the history behind what's going on here is pretty interesting but as a film itself i uh did not find it to be i mean it's not like a atrocious film but i don't know that it really uh grabbed me on any kind of emotional level yeah you mentioned the characters um the two most interesting characters i thought were actually the two people who had tried to adapt to japanese culture and then found themselves stuck in a crossroads. And maybe it's problematic to have them if they were the main characters or something because um, they're the people who sort of compromise the most. I thought they they could be, they had the potential to be interesting characters. Um, Obviously the main character, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, Chief Moana, M-O-A-N-A, is a real person, but he is drawn, I mean, he's a resistance leader uprising character i mean it's almost like a stock character to some degree yeah and there's a part where his like the ghost of his father like comes to visit him and the filmmaker totally oversells it by framing this shot with like digital sunlight looking majestically and there's like a rainbow and um it was one of the parts where i felt like they were putting it on way too strong yeah Um, i think i think that melodrama is more common in like asian cinema or like chinese cinema almost that's a purely anecdotal reasoning based on something that my one of my professors that was from korea said that asian audiences like melodrama and western audiences don't that was his anecdote that he that I'm relaying to you. So I don't know if there's any validity to that or not. Based on the Asian films I've seen, I mean, I guess, I mean, obviously there's a wide amount of different cultures and different styles that encompass what you call Asia. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that this probably plays better for the audience than it was intended for rather than for the international audience, partially because as a patriotic epic, you know, the... In Taiwan, I'm sure this is, you know, the equivalent of like a revolutionary war epic in America. So maybe the uh, mythologicization or the, uh, you know, the canonization of these characters is probably, you know, not something that they would find odd. Whereas with me watching it, it just came off as, as rather hokey. One thing I did appreciate is they did not gloss over some of the carnage that was committed. We do see that the the Taiwanese are headhunters. They don't go into it a lot, but there is a lot of decapitations. Um, they do have a headhunting custom where they keep the skulls of their enemies. And that's something that audiences, I would think modern audiences might find kind of icky, but they don't, they keep it in there. Uh, we do see that a lot of innocent people get killed in their uprising. Uh, their chief tells them not to kill the Chinese. I don't know if you remember that line. He says something like, we agreed not to kill the Hans, which would be Han Chinese. And the other guy says, like, we did, really? I don't remember, or something like that. Like, he, he doesn't remember them agreeing to that. And the film actually doesn't even show them discussing it. So I, wondered, see- I wondered, while watching that part, I wondered if that was a modern sort of, we're making this for, like, a Chinese audience. So let's uh, just focus on killing the Japanese instead. 
well, while watching that, I, I couldn't help but wonder if um, I, I did mean, look. I did look that up actually, and the, apparently they're revolt. They did try and spare the Chinese, but as we see in the movie, uh, when things get underway, it gets pretty chaotic and messy. Oh, okay. But there, but there there was an attempt to kill only Japanese people. Actually, one other criticism I had from it, which is a weird criticism for I was just saying they they do air a little bit of the dirty laundry. You know, the fact that innocent people are being killed. There's a part where one of the soldiers, the Taiwanese soldiers, is shooting inside like a building that has a bunch of women and children in it. Um, and you can hear everyone screaming inside. So they're not going to shy away from the fact that obviously an uprising caused a lot of people to die. Or even the fact that the, he says the purpose of their uprising is to give, uh, I think he says to give blood offering to their ancestors. So their purpose isn't even to throw out the Japanese, which they seem to recognize is futile to some degree. The purpose is, I guess, to kill as many Japanese people as possible so that they can go into the afterlife, you know, with uh, proper recognition from their ancestors. And that's the kind of thing that I did find a little interesting. Um, one thing that disappointed me, though, is there's you no know, women characters. It's a very, very, very masculine movie. We really don't get any perspective from any women other than probably the scene that was most memorable, which is the mass suicide. So the only thing of note that any woman character does in the movie is commit suicide. Yeah, and I don't know if you looked this up, if that is something that really happened. I'm assuming that it probably is. I felt like that was sort of an odd, I don't know, like in the, maybe this is a, uh, an instance where the longer version would have fleshed out the reasoning for that a little better, but it kind of came out of nowhere to me when all these, this group of women were suddenly like, oh, by the way, we should all kill ourselves now. But I guess... Like you're saying, this was they sort of went into this knowing that it was a, a futile effort. So there wasn't really much uh, pretense that they were all going to make it out the other side. But yeah, like it is sort of um, probably not great that in your uh, historical epic, the all of the uh, female characters all got together and killed themselves halfway through. And up to that point had maybe 10 lines of dialogue between all of them. Yeah, I mean, the focus on the film is this uh, headhunter culture, which we've shown is very like macho. So yeah, that's kind of, they sort of just focus on that. And the, which uh, is a weird, I think it's weird that on one level they do focus on that, but they don't seem to, but on the other hand, you have the very stormtrooper Japanese soldiers dying in droves. So on the one hand, we're trying to like look at this culture and like, how they feel about living under occupation because they can't get the facial tattoos that they're supposed to get as a right into manhood. So there's a whole generation of young men growing up feeling emasculated, which could be interesting, right? I mean, that's a thing that I'm sure happens under occupation. But yeah, then on the other hand, we get the Japanese soldiers uh, dying in droves in these battle scenes where the the Taiwanese can just like casually dispatch them by the dozens and it's just weren't sure if they wanted to make the gritty historical epic or they wanted to make the patriotic movie where everyone cheers in the theater when all the Japanese get killed. It seemed pretty clear that they were trying to do both and I think that was part of the problem. Well, Dustin, do you have a recommendation for us? 
Yeah, so sort of in line with Ronin, I had a film that I wanted to recommend that is with Ronin is also sort of a crazy off-the-wall science fiction story. And that is the 1974 film Zardos. Have you seen this movie? I have not. Is it the one where Sean Connery has the ridiculous red costume? Yes, yes. It's kind of online. You see people sort of uh, snickering over the ridiculous costume that Sean Connery as the main character wears, where he's got this kind of like red Speedo thing. And this character has this really long braid, and he looks very ridiculous. Um, But Zardos is a film by... John Borman, who throughout a lot of his career has kind of an an interest in myths and myth-making. And Zardos is a film sort of about the uh, myths that are created and maintained to control people and to inspire people in the setting of like sort of a post-apocalyptic world where you have a divided society between these different classes of people Um, And then there's sort of like myths and ideas that are then intentionally put forth to try to control the behavior of these people. Part of that involves a giant floating stone head that vomits guns everywhere. So it's definitely very maximalist and very over the top. But in terms of a film that kind of throws in everything in the kitchen sink in sort of a wild sci-fi story. I actually, people like to uh, joke about how weird it is and stuff, but I would say that totally, like, unironically and on the level it's meant to be, it's very, really well done. I would actually say a really good movie. It's worth watching. My recommendation is actually also about samurai searching for vengeance. Uh, 47 Ronin, the comic adaptation by Stan Sakai. I don't know if you've read that. I have, yes. Um, Obviously, Stan Sakai's art is tremendous and perfect in every way although it is a little weird to see him draw humans instead of rabbits and yeah other animals. It, it is odd to see him in a non like funny animal mode he gives you the sort of mythological take i think on the 47 ronin uh because you could argue the gritty historical take uh would play at different kind of sympathies uh but it is an actual historical story so Apologies to the Taiwanese who died fighting Imperial Japan, but I'm going to recommend something that is a Japanese national myth. Uh, 47 Ronin comic by Stan Sakai. Thank you for listening. You can find us on the web at armyofcrime.com. I am on Twitter. My username is at armyofcrime, and my co-host is at Dustin4444. If you enjoyed our program, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you prefer. Obviously, we'll edit this little part out.